Galatians chapter 5 is our text once again this morning. As we are continuing to look through this epistle, this letter from Paul to the churches at Galatia, we have been considering when the gospel is being perverted. We have now came to the part of the book where the right use of the law is being instructed. And we are specifically looking about the power to fulfill the law in Galatians chapter 5, 13 through 26. Let us note, though, as we consider this, that we are not talking about the power to fulfill the law for justification because none exists. You cannot be justified by the law. For you have broken the law. You are a transgressor of the law. And therefore, justification is by faith in Jesus Christ, the one who kept the law, who did what we could not do. He kept the law perfectly. And his perfect sacrifice was given as an atonement for our sins. Therefore, we are only justified through the merits and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if you're looking to be justified by your merits and your righteousness, I would just ask you, how righteous really are you? But even if you were 99% righteous, it's not good enough. James says that if you transgress the law, if you transgress one part of the law, you transgress the law. One commandment means that you're a transgressor of the law. And so, none of us, I don't think, can even claim 99%. I don't know of any of us that could claim 1%. You know, I can understand the person that's at 99% thinking, you know, I might just be able to pull this off. But the people that are at 1%, that just takes the cake, doesn't it? And I think that will become more evident to you shortly. But the reason why we don't have that opinion of ourselves, first of all, we have this natural pride, which is a sin, by the way, um, which makes you a transgressor of all. But we have this pride. But the second thing is, we just never really consider anything. Especially today, nowadays. We just, we, we really don't. I mean, there's this natural component to where we don't know the thoughts and intents of our own hearts. Because our hearts are desperately wicked and we can't even know them. We can't actually know what's in our hearts, but we never even try to look in our hearts. We don't examine ourselves. We don't consider these things very significantly. And it's because we have, we, we live these insignificant, superficial lives. I'm not being, I'm not meaning based upon vocation or status. That's not what I mean by insignificant. I mean because there really isn't any meditation and thought and examination and pursuance. You know, we like to make fun of the evolutionists who claim that 
we're just chemical components busy. But unfortunately, that's how many live their lives. They just kind of fizz. And so, we just kind of bounce in a reactionary way from thing to thing based upon feelings and emotions. But we never really have any purpose. And so, we are considering the fulfilling, the power to fulfill the law. And so let's begin reading in verse number 13, where Paul says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, not to the bondage of the works of the law, but you've been called to liberty and faith in Christ, and only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So we have been considering the power of to fulfill the law. And last week, we looked at verse 16, and we looked at the discipline of the Spirit, where Paul says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the works of the flesh in verse number 19. That is the power to fulfill the law. First of all, the power to fulfill the law requires regeneration because you have to be in the Spirit. You have to be of the Spirit. You have to be led by the Spirit. You have to possess the Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again, Jesus said. It requires regeneration, a work of the Holy Spirit. 
to take us from, according to the flesh, being the offspring of disobedient, sinful Adam, and being born again according to the second Adam, Jesus Christ, in His righteousness. I say then, walk in the flesh, and you will not fulfill verse 19. Isn't that what he's saying? So there is a right use of the law. The right use of the law is to be created in the righteousness of Christ. But we consider in verse 16 the discipline of the Spirit because he says, walk in it. There is action that must be performed by the new man. And if there is no action performed by the new man, then there never was a man. You see, those who are born according to the flesh walk in the flesh. Those who are born according to the flesh walk like Adam walked. Those who are born by the Spirit walk as Jesus walked. So he says, walk in the Spirit. And if you do, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So we considered that last week, and we're going to jump right in to the second point found in verse number 17, and that is the actual overcoming of the flesh. And that's what we're going to consider here this morning, and there are some things that we have to do, and so I have to beg you uh, to uh, try to stay alert and focus on uh, the sermon this morning, because it's going to be extensively a lot of quotes from Scripture and from other men. And the reason is because there is one element here that we are going to conduct this morning in order to try to really open up this aspect of the flesh. Because it never really does get opened up, especially in modern theology which is really Romans 1 theology, which is always attempting to suppress the righteousness of God. That's what we have today, right? I mean, all throughout the church in Sunday school, I gave you examples of that, of Romans 1 theology, and that's what we have in America today, which is a suppression, the attempt to suppress the righteousness of God. And, of course, that's because we, we, we don't really believe the Bible. And that's what we're considering in Sunday school. We're showing, proving, giving, trying to give you confidence in the Word of God that it is true and everything else contrary to it is absurd. And that's the kind of confidence that we need to have. That's the kind of confidence that's required as a Christian. Because... The Christian life is all about complete 100% surrender uh, to Jesus Christ and giving up everything, giving up our lives and everything for Him. Well, that doesn't take place if there's not full confidence and persuasion. 
It doesn't happen. So, we're going to try to open up this aspect of the flesh here this morning to try to get us to really think and understand what is being stated here concerning the flesh and the spirit. Because in verse number 17, notice, after Paul says in verse 16, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. So first of all, we really do need to hone in on this word flesh. John Gill in his commentary said this. He wrote, by flesh is meant. Not the carnal or literal sense of the scripture. Which is origins clause as militating against the spiritual sense of it, nor the central part of man rebelling against his rational powers, but the corruption of nature. So when we talk about the flesh, John Gill says we're talking about the corruption of man's nature. So when we're referring to the flesh here in Galatians chapter 5, we're talking about our corrupt nature, our sinful nature, that we were born dead in trespasses and sins. We were born inheriting the sinful nature of Adam who was under the curse because of his transgression and rebellion against God. So he points out that we're talking about the corruption of nature, and then he says this, which is still in regenerate persons. Because if you notice, that's what Paul is describing here. And in Romans chapter 8, which is a very uh, clear picture of Christians being described as possessing the flesh and the spirit simultaneously in this body. If you're regenerated. Now, if you're not a believer, if you've not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, you possess the flesh and you do not possess the spirit. But all those who have faith in Christ and have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they possess also the Spirit, the nature of God through Jesus Christ, as well as the corrupt nature of man. So they possess the spiritual nature and the corrupt nature, the holy nature in the sinful nature. And so he says, we're talking about the corruption of nature which still is in regenerate persons and is so called because it is propagated by carnal generation. From Adam all the way down to you. For it has for its object carnal things. The flesh desires carnal things. Its lusts and works are fleshly. In other words, all these things, it, it, it desires corrupt things. Its lusts and works are corrupt or corruption. And though it has its seat in the heart, it shows itself in the flesh or members of the body. So it's an inward nature, but it is manifested and revealed 
through all the parts of our body, which are yielded as instruments of unrighteousness. So I have hatred in my heart, I have murder in my heart, in my hands, strangle the life out of somebody. But it's because of the corrupt nature that's in me. That's the reason why hatred is described as murder. Because hatred is the actual sinful component in our nature that gets demonstrated outwardly through murder. And so, our members of our body are yielded as instruments of unrighteousness, and it makes and uh, it makes men carnal. And even believers, he says, themselves, so far as it prevails. So when we talk about the flesh and the spirit, what John Gill is demonstrating or is trying to explain, explain from what Paul has written is that believers possess the flesh and the spirit. And the more the, the flesh prevails, the more that sin will be demonstrated in our lives. The more that the spirit prevails, the more of the spirit will be demonstrated. So, the more of the flesh that we have governing and dominating us, the more of verse 19 will be demonstrated in some form or another. And the more of the spirit that is in control, the more of verse 20 will be demonstrated in some way and measure through us. So there are these two components. But in relation to the flesh, we're talking about the corruption of nature, the sinfulness of man. John Calvin wrote, Disobedience and rebellion against the Spirit of God pervade the whole nature of man. Isn't this what Paul describes in Romans chapter 3? And I love reading, this, uh, reading that, especially to modern Americans and modern Christians when it says that there is none who seek after God. <laughs> well, hey, you know, we're always one of those. I do. But Calvin says here, disobedience and rebellion against the Spirit of God pervade the whole nature of man. So all of man's nature, his natural nature, is corrupt. And the Bible describes it as being dead and trespasses and sins. And the problem is, is that we no longer believe this today, and it's very devastating to us as Christians. When you have, when you have that satanic, devilish monster in you, and you don't want to admit it, and you don't want to deal with it, that's a problem. And the problem is that we no longer believe this. Oh, we're 
goody-two-shoes nowadays, aren't we? We think that we are so, so, so godly and spiritual. I mean, it's got to the point where we have Christians who think that they are so much gods, that they are so godly and so spiritual because they don't have a beard. And then we have the other group that thinks that they're godly and spiritual because they do have a beard. Look in your heart. not the outward things, is it? Jesus told the Pharisees that they were like white sepulchers. They were clean and beautiful on the outside. They were white on the outside, but inside they were full of dead men's bones. And then he told them, because they were like, how come your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat? They don't do the rituals that have been passed down from the elders. Why don't they do it? And Jesus is like, it's not what comes from outside, inside the man that corrupts him. It's what's on the inside of man that comes out of man. You see, all that stuff's just going to go into the mouth and out through the sewage system, right? But out of the heart, Jesus said, proceeds evil thoughts, and murders, and envy, and strife, and adulteries. But you see, the problem is we no longer believe this. We have been deceived by the ultimate deception, which is this, that man is essentially good. The most damnable doctrine that we have to combat is that man is essentially good. We don't believe in the holiness of God, because if you believe in the holiness of God, you're not even going to give five seconds to consideration concerning the goodness of man. You have to have a pretty low bar to even think that man might be good. A pretty low bar. Which means if your bar is that low on what goodness is, you don't believe in the holiness of God. And that's the problem. We don't believe in the holiness of God, therefore we don't fear Him. We don't believe in the sinfulness of man ourselves. I mean, I might believe in the sinfulness of others. Right? We believe in the sinfulness of others, maybe. But we don't believe in the sinfulness of ourselves, and therefore we do not fear God. But Paul describes the sinfulness of the flesh in verse number 19, and notice what he says. Now the works of the flesh, Judaizers are saying, yeah, you know what you need? You need the works of the law, which is the works of the flesh. The demonstration of your righteousness, that's the works of the law, that's the works of the flesh. The demonstration of your righteousness. The Judaizers were saying to the Galatians, yeah, you need more um, you need more works of the flesh in addition to this faith in Christ. And Paul's saying the works of the flesh are these things. This is what the works of your flesh are. Adultery. Fornication. Uncleanness. Lewdness. Idolatry. Sorcery. 
hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And God told his people, Israel, that transgression of these things is what separates them from God. So what is Paul describing here? He is describing actions that are contrary to the commandments. Each one of these things is a violation of the Ten Commandments. Or, if you want to summarize the law, even lower than or shorter than the Ten Commandments. The greatest of the commandments is the one table of the law being to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second table of the law, to love your neighbor as yourself. Here is a summary in verse 19, 20, and 21. A summary of sins in violation against the nature and revealed will of God. And the Apostle John says, sin is the transgression of the law. But we don't lay it to heart. We don't think about it. Jesus was constantly confronting the Jews for their self-righteousness in order to get men to consider their ways, in order to acknowledge themselves as sinners, because there is no hope, absolutely zero hope of salvation for any individual who will not acknowledge his sins. And to acknowledge them in the light of God's perfection and their total depravity. There's no hope for salvation. You see, it's out of the heart that proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and blasphemies. We can't even blame it on the devil. As Jesus said, it comes right out of your heart. And so Jesus said that he didn't come to destroy the law. Remember that in Matthew chapter 5? I didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot, not one tittle will pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And so then he goes on to exhort those who were listening to him to be teachers of the law. But then he follows that up immediately by saying this. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. The Apostle John says that if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. And then Jesus continues on and he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks upon a woman, the lust after her has already committed adultery in her heart. Or in their heart, excuse me. Why? Because Jesus said, Out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemy. John Calvin wrote, All the thoughts of the flesh are acts against, uh, are acts of enmity against God. And so that is why this morning, 
to first of all to understand the flesh, not only in relation in our understanding of salvation through Christ, but also understanding the flesh in relation to our sanctification in Christ. So I admonish you to really consider the flesh. We know that the law is summarized in loving God and loving your neighbor. But here are two examples that I'm pulling from the larger catechism of the Westminster Confession of Faith when it asks this, what is the first commandment? And it says the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And then the next question in the catechism states this, what are the duties required in the first commandment? Now listen to this. This is a consideration of what it means to have no other gods before the one true and the living God. What are the duties required then based upon this commandment? And it says the duties required in the first commandment are the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify Him accordingly by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing of Him, believing Him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in Him, being zealous for Him, calling upon Him, giving all praise and thanks, and yielding all obedience and submission to Him with the whole man, being careful in all things to please Him, and sorrowful when in anything He is offended and walking humbly with Him. That's the to-do part. The next act asks, what are the sins forbidden in the first commandment? To which it responds, the sins forbidden in the first commandment are atheism in denying or not having a God, idolatry in having or worshiping more gods than one, or in any or any with or instead of the true God, the not having and avouching him for God and our God, the omission or neglect of anything due to him required in this commandment, ignorance, forgetfulness, misapprehensions, false opinions, unworthy and wicked thoughts of him, bold and curious searching into his secrets, all profaneness, hatred of God, self-love, self-seeking, and all other inordinate and immoderate setting of our mind, will or affections upon other things, and taking them off from him in whole or in part, vain credulity, unbelief, heresy, uh, misbelief, distrust, despair, incorrigibleness, and insensibility, uh, insensibilities under judgments, hardness of heart, pride, presumption, carnal security, tempting of God, using unlawful means and trusting in lawful means, uh, carnal delights and joys, corrupt, blind, and indiscreet zeal, lukewarmness, and deadness in the things of God, estranging ourselves and apostatizing from God, Praying or giving any religious worship to saints, angels, or any other creatures, all compacts and consulting with the devil and hearkening to his suggestions, making men the lords of our faith and conscience, slighting and despising God and his commands, resisting and grieving his spirit, discontent and impatience at his dispensations, charging him foolishly for the evils he inflicts on us, and ascribing the praise of any good we either are, have, or can do to fortune, idols, ourselves, or any other creature. Whew! 
Anybody think they've lived up to that? So, what about our love for man? What is the sixth commandment? Thou shalt not kill. What are the duties required in the sixth commandment? The duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of others, of ourselves and others, by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any by just defense thereof against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat, uh, meat, drink, sleep, labor, and recreations, by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, uh, mild and uh, courteous speeches and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries, and requiting good for evil, comforting and secure, uh, securing the distressed, and protecting and defending the innocent. What are the sins forbidden in the sixth commandment? So that was what to do. This is not what not to do. The sins forbidden in the sixth commandment are taking, uh, taking away the life of others or ourselves, Except in case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense, the neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life, sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of drink, meat, labor, and recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. Those are the easier ones, right? You would think. Isn't that the ones where it was like, well, I've never killed anybody. That's one way it's quote because we think it's the easier one. Well, that didn't sound too easy. That's how corrupt the flesh is. Because you and I are violating the Sixth Commandment way more than we think. So that's just a brief consideration of two of the Ten Commandments. That was just a few minutes here within the sermon of consideration of two commandments. And I would say that's probably the longest and the most that most of us have considered any of the commandments. But it should begin to reveal this, that our flesh is corrupt. Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. That's the Apostle Paul speaking as a Christian. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. 
I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. When we're talking about the flesh, we're talking about the corruption, the natural corruption that is in each and every one of us. So we don't have time. That's just a consideration of the flesh. Next week we will consider the spirit and then we will begin to discuss that in the life of a Christian we still have the flesh. We have been given the spirit in which to destroy the flesh. And that is the battle that is supposed to be taking place in Christians. Because Paul says this. Notice what he says in verse 16. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. There's a battle. And these are contrary to one another so that you would not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, in other words, if the Spirit is the one taking dominion, if you're led by the Spirit, not by the flesh, if the Spirit is gaining victory over the flesh, then you're not under the law, meaning you're not under the condemnation of the law, but you're not under the power of the law. The corruption of the flesh. You see, this is very important information about to understand the flesh and to know that what we as Christians are supposed to be doing in mortifying the flesh so that we might walk in the Spirit. And the reason why we are not walking in the Spirit and fulfilling the law is because we are giving aid to the flesh in order to overcome the Spirit. This is the reason why he says to Walk in the flesh. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, If you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify, kill, destroy the deeds of the body, the works of the flesh, the works of the law, you shall 